The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. I, I think it's worth, uh, before we get into it, because I, I know over the next few weeks we're going to be diving into some, um, maybe some strange doctrines, some different things that we typically don't hear a lot about. And I, I, I think it's, it's good for me to just kind of kind of set, set the stage for what we're doing and what we're not doing. Um, I am not, by any stretch of the imagination, an expert on Jehovah's Witness theology. Okay? Just period. Right? So there's probably going to be a lot of times where you get to questions where you're like, what in the world do they mean by that? Maybe I can help, maybe I can't, but what I want to emphasize through the study of this in this class is not here's what all the doctrines you've got to memorize so that when you open your door and there's somebody that represents that doctrine, you've got to know it better than they do. That's not what we're doing. What I want to emphasize over the course of the next few weeks is it's not about what they believe particularly. It is about sound doctrine. It is about Christian doctrine. It's about understanding what you believe. It is helpful to know where they're going to differ from you. That's very helpful to know. But it isn't necessary. At the end of the day, there are questions that you can ask to get to the difference between you and them. Very simple questions that cut straight to the quick. And so we're going to see, hopefully, in the course of diving into some of the doctrine. Um, where it is that they're going to differ. And I will tell you this, for most every member of a cult, or most every cult that's out there, whether it's the occult or the occult, either one, both of them are going to deviate typically in the same direction. And it's normally going to be on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And, And I think more often than not, when we open the door and we're talking to, let's say, a Jehovah's Witness on the other side of, uh, since that's what we're talking about this morning, talking to a Jehovah's Witness on our doorstep, we often will accept their definitions for things without even knowing it. So we say, well, what do you believe about Jesus? We believe he was the Son of God. Well, okay. But we don't maybe take the next step to say, what do you mean by Son? When you say he's the Son of God, define that, please. And when you get to those definitions, the very specific nuances of what they believe, hopefully you will begin to see the errors in their doctrine, the sins in their doctrine, the falseness in their doctrine. Um, When I started here uh, over six years ago now, on Wednesday night, Wednesday night for us was, and still is, um, a, a, a night to teach sound doctrine and to, to dive into things that we may not typically go into on Sunday morning into a, a specific kind of detail that we typically don't go through on Sunday morning in a sermon or something like that. And when I, when I started, my goal, number one, I, I said this to everybody that was there, that the goal really is to take the people of the church and set up in our minds tripwires of sound doctrine so that 
when false doctrine comes in, it's going to hit the tripwire of sound doctrine, and bells are going to go off all over the place. Now, you may not be able to sit there and go through the finer points of the Trinitarian theology or the, the nuances of eschatology or even know what those terms really mean. And that's, that's fine to a degree. What we want, though, is for us to be so inundated with sound doctrine that when false doctrine creeps in, it sounds very strange to us. It sounds weird. And so then, if that's the case, and you've given yourself to the teaching of sound doctrine such that false doctrine sounds very peculiar to you, then I would say to you, listen to those instincts, those bells that are going off in your head. It doesn't mean that you're right. You may be wrong. But it at least gives you enough pause to say, maybe I, maybe I should ask questions about this, or maybe I shouldn't dive full force into this. When you think about uh, parenting, they're, 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 you, every parent, when they you know, teach kids, they're going to they're gonna teach them to be safe, to protect themselves, right? And, and one way to do that is to say, hey, when we're in a parking lot, stay close by my side, right? And, and that's good when they're very young, when they're just learning to walk, or they're, you know, as your, your kid is, you know, hold my hand, stay very close by my side. But you do know that eventually they're going to be 16, and they're not going to be able to hold your hand anymore without it being very awkward, right, in the parking lot, and they're not going to want to do that, right? So the other part of the protection of the kids is actually arming them, teaching them to equip themselves, to say, you got to watch out for cars, you got to look both ways before you cross the street, and those kinds of things. And so, so it is with the church, like we come together, and we want to preserve sound doctrine in here, right? When we're together, we want sound doctrine to be taught, we don't expect there to be false doctrine around us on the pews next to us, though there may be. We, we wouldn't expect that to have a, a, a platform here in our church. And so in that sense, it's very easy to say, well, just stay here in the church and you'll always be protected by sound doctrine. But that's not practical or reasonable. You're going to go out into the outside world, so how is it that you are equipped and armed when you're outside the walls of the church, or you're outside the sheltering of a pastor or Christian brothers and sisters or people around you to kind of correct you. You have to arm yourself. You have to learn yourself. You have to grow and understand. So with that in mind, we come into our, our uh, topic at hand today, which is Jehovah's Witness and their ideology, and let's hear what, what it is that they believe. And I'm hoping that as we go through this, some of these things will sound very peculiar to you. I mean, you're already kind of on defense already because you, you know this isn't sound doctrine. And so uh, as we go through it, I'm hoping that some of these things you go, oh, I kind of recognize the error there. I, I recognize what, the, what is being said. But, but just to review what we talked about last week, because this, this is very important. As the early church began to put into language uh, explanations and definitions of what the world witnessed in Jesus. Jesus is gone, he has ascended into heaven, and the church is now beginning to describe, to put into words, that is doctrine, what we believe about what just happened when Jesus came and he died and he left and what's going on now. There was also counter-narratives, other explanations for what happened. So when we begin to parse out what 
actually happened with Jesus coming and putting into language that we would call sound doctrine when we describe what actually happened. But when there's other narratives that describe falsely what happened, it, we call that heresy, or we call the people that pur- purport that or, or teach that heretics. And so it's important that we begin to distinguish what is heresy and what is cultic ideology from what is true and sound doctrine. And, it, you know, it, it's, sometimes it's a little bit difficult as we study our Bibles because the person who is a member of a cult who's standing on your doorstep is going to read, sometimes read the same verses that you're reading, and they're going to read them differently. And so it's important that we begin to understand that. But, but as, you know, the early church begins to kind of describe what's happening with Jesus, there are also false definitions of Christ that come in that were eventually deemed heresy, and it's important to know those. A couple of those, as we talked about last week, docetism and Gnosticism, both sought to undermine the humanity of Jesus. So they're saying Jesus is, we have no problem with the divinity of Jesus, but when it comes to the humanity of Jesus, that is a huge problem because how could something that is divine mix with something that is human? To be human is to be sinful, they would say, and so if he is divine, then to become human is sin. Now, I want you to, whether you remember docetism and Gnosticism is not ultimately the most important thing. That you remember one big error that is made early on in heresy is cutting short Jesus' humanity is important. So you pin in your mind one, one big false doctrine that took place very early on in regards to who Jesus was is they undermined his humanity. We believe Jesus is fully God, that is fully divine, and fully human, right? Both. We hold both of those two things in tension. We don't see those as, um, as opposites of one another, but, but that they can be together in the same person they were in Jesus. Another error is in the opposite direction. This one pay particularly close attention to. Ebionism and Arianism both sought to undermine the full deity of Jesus. So the first error in the previous one was they undermined the humanity of Jesus. Now, in Arianism and Ebionism, they're undermining the deity of Jesus. We believe he's fully human, but to be divine is not something that that he was, obviously. The former uh, is arguing that Jesus was a man, who was endowed mightily with the powers of God, but the latter argued that the Son was the first of all created beings. So what Arianism does, pay really close attention to this, what Arianism does is says, um, we recognize there is something more special about Jesus than merely the Ebionists would say. Ebionists are saying, well, he was just a guy, he was just born, and then God was like, I'll just give you some powers. But Arianism is saying, no, 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 we recognize there's something more to him than that, but not fully divine. That he is a created being, and he's the first of all created beings. That's why the Bible says about him that he's the firstborn of all creation. So there you go. He is the firstborn of all creation. He's a created being, and he was the first of God's created beings, and then he came to earth. So do you understand that that still cuts short Jesus' divinity, right? 
So what you then have, and the great consequence of both of these heresies in both directions, is that it means you and I are the means to save ourselves. That we don't have a divine substitute, and we don't have a human substitute. So we don't have anyone to pay the penalty for our sin because Jesus was not human. We don't have anybody that could pay the penalty for our sin because Jesus was not divine. So either way you go in heresy, you end up cutting short your access to salvation. That is what is at stake, and that is what makes that heresy. You tracking with me so far? Okay. Let's go into uh, Jehovah's Witness with just a brief history. Now, I, I, sometimes I won't do this with the history because it, sometimes it matters and sometimes it doesn't. But I think there is a little parable here that is helpful, okay, to just kind of walk through. Charles Taze Russell was the founder of what is now known as the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, he was born on February 16th, 1852. So just timeline-wise, it helps to kind of put it in human history, 1852. At an early age, he rejected the doctrine of eternal torment. So first thing... Very early on, the doctrine of hell out the window. Rejected it entirely. Now, to my knowledge, I have not found an argument that persuaded him away from that. I haven't found something that he read in the Bible that caused him to deviate from the doctrine of eternal torment. But just that, he rejected it. He rejected the doctrine of eternal torment. And so as a result, he entered a long and varied career of the denunciation aimed at, quote-unquote, organized religions. Okay, so I want you to see, see two things here that are automatically kind of give us a little bit of pause and should serve as a parable for our own lives as well, I think. First, there is the rejection of sound doctrine. Each, the eternal punishment in hell is sound doctrine. It is, Scripture is, I mean, latent with many examples. Jesus, in Jesus' own words of going into the fire of eternal punishment. And this is what we see in the lake of fire in Revelation. It, it's described this way, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, and it's unquenchable flame, and, and Jesus says this a number of times, the authors of the New Testament say this a number of times, but immediately at a very early age there's a rejection of it, and so then what comes next after the rejection of sound doctrine? What comes next in his life? Well, he calls it organized religions, and what does he mean by that? The people that teach that. We would call that a church that teaches sound doctrine, <laughs> right? So, part number one, and there may be 15 steps in between, I, I'm not sure, but Part number one, rejection of sound doctrine. Part number two, rejection of the people that purport sound doctrine. So what, have you what has Satan led him to? What has his own flesh led him to? What has he done? Not only has he rejected the doctrine that's in the Bible, but he's cut himself off from anyone who would correct him. Do you see that? All that's going to happen is going to be a spiral. Timothy. Yeah, well, the rejection of eternal punishment 
is fundamental to the rejection of everything else, for sure. There's no question about that. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's atheism in a nutshell. The rejection of God, you have to reject eternal judgment, if that be the case. So, okay, so he's now cut off. Um, Russell then founded the Herald of the Morning in 1879. So, uh, somebody do the math there for me, 27? I mean, I'm not a mathematician, but I think that's about the, na- the, the amount of it. Um, 1879, which developed into today's, quote-unquote, the Watchtower, which is what it's called, or uh, circulation is called that, announcing Jehovah's Kingdom. Uh, and I w- here's what I want you to see about this. From 6,000 initial issues, the publication has grown to 69,804 bi-monthly copies as of 2018 in 334 languages. So, false doctrine sells is the point, right? People will take it. Now, how many of those 69 million are believing it? I don't know. How many are just on the monthly mail list, you know, and it comes to them addressed to the wrong name and all that kind of stuff? You know, I don't know. But... 69,804,000 is uh, not a small number at all. (laughs) Bi-monthly, by the way. Um, Jehovah's Witness, Jehovah's Witnesses, and its corporate name, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, uh, claims to have 120,053 congregations throughout the world in 240 different lands. So, Beginning with the accepting of false doctrine and the rejecting of sound doctrine, cutting yourself off from people who would correct you with sound doctrine, now isolating yourself into a kind of an echo chamber, more or less, where you surround yourself with people that will affirm your false doctrine, what does it then create? It creates an entirely new religion altogether. Put in conjunction with a person like C.T. Russell, who is uh, magnanimous, uh, persuasive, someone who, is, who uh, can attract a group of people, you put that in the hands of the right person, and all of a sudden, they've misled 69,804,000 people in 120,000 different congregations. Not only that, but this is something that I think you should also pay particularly close attention to. Just pay attention to it all. Uh, we want to say it. Uh, (laughs) prospective members are encouraged to commit themselves to the society as quickly as possible and become members through baptism by immersion. And they must immediately begin training for field work by shadowing older members. Now, there's some things in here that you look at and go, that is at least, there is there is commendation that the church should think about in regards to how they approach missions. You believe, then tell. If this is true and you believe it and you're baptized under it, tell. Second, get with an older person in the church to teach you further. You don't know it all when you become a Christian. You need to learn, right? But when that is false doctrine, how easily people are persuaded and taken out in the field to propagate false doctrine. What this also says to you is that when you open the door to a Jehovah's Witness, 
and there is standing in front of you two people. Normally, I don't know what your experience is. Normally, it's two women. I don't know if, if you've had experience with Jehovah's Witnesses or not, but I don't know, and I don't know why that is. I, I, to this day, I, I couldn't tell you exactly the reason why. But normally, it is two women. Just know that there's a high likelihood that though one of them has been around Jehovah's Witness for a long time, the other one is probably brand new. So, think, pray, and be careful, right? The last thing you want to do is further entrench them in an ideology because you're being a jerk, right? And that's easy to be. Uh, Believe me, I've been it. It's easy to be. It's easy to just tell them plainly, get them off your doorstep, and go. But if you think for just a second, there's probably one of those people may have been in Jehovah's Witness, this Jehovah's Witness cult for a month, maybe. I know as I read that and I look back at my previous interactions, I know exactly which one on the doorstep had not been of Jehovah's Witness for very long. She was the one that whenever I started talking about the gospel, was going, huh, <laughs> had this sort of like, interesting, I didn't know that look on her face. While the other one was like, no, 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 and would step in and cut me off. And so, again, just remember that as they're on your doorstep, that that's probably the case. So they go out, they begin training immediately after baptism by shadowing older members. They're being discipled, essentially, by older members into false doctrine. Though most of the time, the people on the doorstep, are, they obviously would not tell you that they're, what they're believing is false. They actually genuinely believe it, Right? It's our job to introduce them to sound doctrine. So, what do we do then? When, when they're asking, or they're, they're telling us things about doctrine, what, what are the things that should uh, ring the alarm bells? Here's all, these are all the things in the words of Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay, So, this is taken straight from their literature. Uh, Jehovah, the Father, is the only true God. These are, again, Jehovah's Witnesses' beliefs. This is not me saying or advocating this. I want you to remember that. Jesus is his firstborn son, and he is subject to God. The Father is greater than the Son. Does that sound like anything that you've heard? Does it? I think you've heard this. We, heard, we talked about this a little bit last week, right? You look back on your review in point number three, you will see a very similar argument being made there last week by the Arians. The true scripture, they say, speak of God's Son, the Word, as a God. He is a mighty God, but not the Almighty God, who is Jehovah. So there's one true God, and then Jesus is a God, lower than God, created by God, not in any way what we would say equal to the Father, but subject to the Father in every way, and is a God. So if you, if you, what that means then is if you go to John 1.1, 1, 1, where John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God is what it will say in your Bible when you open it there, right? When a Jehovah's Witness opens their Bible, it will say, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Okay? So, 
very quickly, what's very easy to do, and you, you could even just keep this by your doorstep if you want to, just, oh, hang on just a second, you grab this, <laughs> put a little star there, and you know that if you have them turn to John 1.1 in their translation of the Bible, it will underscore very quickly the difference between you and them. They will say, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Right there is the difference already between you and I. What's that? We're going to get there. Give me just a second. <laughs> so, so immediately you know there is a difference there between what you believe about Jesus and what is sound doctrine and what, uh, and what the Bible actually teaches and what, uh, what their Bible says. All right? Uh, Jesus, they say, was a created spirit being. Just as angels were spirit beings created by God, neither the angels nor Jesus had existed before their creation. Now, is that what Christians believe? What do we believe about Jesus? He always was. The, the, another way of saying that is there never was a time when he was not, right? He, was, he always was, always has been, always will be. So uh, that, that, again, John 1.1 is a great passage to turn to. Let's just open. I want to read my version of John 1.1, and I want you to read your version, and I want you to tell me the difference. Jeremy. Of, of you asking to read? Oh, no. Oh, no. Um, or at least not has been my experience. I mean, maybe they're getting training, and their, their training is being updated right now. I don't know. Uh, uh, when they have all the encounters with you guys, they, they will, right? Then they'll be like, we gotta, we got to reboot the training, all right? Um, it, my experience has been when they'll come up to you, and they will say, can we read a verse? It, like, that's their kind of opening introduction. We're from Jehovah, we're Jehovah's Witness. We, we were wondering if we could uh, just, you know, come to, come to you and just read a, a Bible verse and maybe pray with you. And they would expect the vast majority of people are going to say yes, and that means, check, I can come back to their house again. This, they're a favorable person, right? They're, we're not shaking the dust off our, our sandals. And so when you have them read a verse, normally it's going to be a verse somewhere out of an Old Testament prophet that you won't have memorized, and you won't, and, and maybe you wouldn't be able to even distinguish between their translation and your translation. It may not even be a different translation, but they'll use it maybe to say a, a thing or two and a devotional thought and then pray with you. When you say, yes, but can I pick the verse, they go, <laughs> At least that's been my experience. They kind of pause, and their eyes get really wide, and they're like, sure. And you say, John 1, 1. And they say, okay. And they flip to John 1, 1, and they read it. And then you say, now I want to read my version, and I want you to tell me the difference between those two. And then you read it. That tends to be where the dialogue is, where the dialogue really happens. So you can very quickly get to the difference. You don't have to, I mean, you don't have to be rude in the sense that, it's not really rude to say, I don't want you to pray with me, you belong to a cult, and things like that. That's not rude. 
I mean, you can say it in a nice way. You don't have to be a jerk about it. You can say it in a nice way. That's not rude. But there is also a, a, maybe a better way that might be more evangelistic, which would be to get straight to the, the heart of the argument, and it cuts the whole prayer out of the thing, and now we're discussing sound doctrine, right? Immediately. You tell me the difference between your translation and my translation. Yours says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word was a God, and mine says the Word was God. Tell me the difference between the meaning of those two things, right? So now, all of a sudden, we get into doctrine, and, and as much Jehovah's Witness theology as you can remember is helpful, sure. You know, you could say you believe he was a created being, an actual created being. And Christianity, for 2,000 years, has not believed about Jesus that he was a created being. Here's what Jesus says about himself. I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. Right? In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So as many scriptures as you can bring to mind, again, little cheat sheet hanging by your door in the event that a Jehovah's Witness comes by is really handy. Right? They got notes. Why can't you? Right? <laughs> don't, don't go into it blind. You got a little cheat sheet right there by your, by your doorstep. It's fine. Uh, so anyway... Yeah. Well, by the time you ask that first question about the verse, and then you start getting into doctrine, they're going to be looking to bail from that conversation real quick. Most of them are. Now, that would be the difference between where you actually see some evangelistic opportunities here, and where you're really shutting out sound doctrine. You have to understand that when someone from any cult is, is evangelizing you. When you begin evangelizing them, there is either going to be a wall put up and bail out of the conversation, and you're going to know in that circumstance, I was just, I was keeping false doctrine out of my house, right? And away from my family. Okay? That's, that's fine. That's, that's good. That is, that's biblical. We should be doing that. Yeah. But, in the event that you find two people, maybe, that are inquisitive about what the Bible actually says, now you know this is actually evangelistic. They're open to hearing sound doctrine, and they've been misled. And so, now let's sit down and let's go further into this. Come to church with me. Hear what sound doctrine is like. Um, you know, I think for a long time we, we got away from uh, maybe just inviting people to church, you know, as a means of evangelism, because I don't know why, but some, I guess, saw it as like, well, you should be evangelizing. Evangelize, and then you don't need the church to evangelize for you. You need to evangelize. Well, sometimes it's really hard. You're, you're a new believer, and you don't know everything, and, and you know some aspects of it. Let me tell you who Jesus is. He forgave me of my sin. Maybe that's as far as you can get. And I have eternal life through Christ, and maybe that's as far as you can get with the gospel because that's all you know. Come with me to church. It's a great invitation to them to, to, come, to come with you and sit with you and, and listen to this or hear... Uh, preaching and go, go to lunch with me afterwards and things like that. Those are good things to do. 
So in the event that you actually find two people who are open to sound doctrine, why don't you come with me on Sunday, and I'll, I'll come pick you up, and we can go to my church, and you can listen. So we need to be evangelistic, but then also know that priority number one is keeping false doctrine out of my heart and keeping it out of the heart of my family members and out of my household. But part number two is I want these people to come to Christ. I want them to see who Jesus really is and realize that all they're working for, all they're doing, everything that they're doing, the reason they are standing on your doorstep right now is because they want to get to heaven. And that's the way they think they can get there. By works. So just think about that for a second. Here is a person crying out for help. They don't know that, most of them. They're crying out for help. They think that by standing on that door, your doorstep and your neighbor's and your next-door neighbor and neighbor after you, that that is how they are going to get to heaven. And that God is going to go, well, look how many doorsteps you walked onto. Look how bold you were. Heaven is yours. And, and they think that somehow that's going to merit them heaven. So it's, it's tragic, is what it is. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's true. Um, so you can see the, the references here at the end of each one. Should I believe the Trinity? Should you believe the Trinity? Uh, page 14. That's where this comes from. This is Jehovah's Witness doctrine. So this is straight from their own literature. Um, while on earth... Jesus was a human, although a perfect one, because it was God who transferred the life force of Jesus to the womb of Mary. Jesus no more, Jesus no more and no less than, Jesus was no more and no less than a perfect human. But he was human, right? You see, you see the, di the difference there. Now, now when, there, when he gets to earth, he is not deity at all. He is human. And God has transferred to him a certain measure of life force, whatever that is, uh, to Jesus. That's why he appeared to do many different things. But you understand, when he becomes less than divine, in eternity past, whenever that was, the firstborn, when he becomes less than divine, when he comes to earth, he has to be no more than merely human, right? It still is God the Father who has to transfer all that juice to him, whatever, whatever that is. All right. Um, the firstborn from the dead was raised from the grave, not a human creature, but a spirit. Now what do we get to? Resurrection. Of the, so here's Jesus. Here's who he is. He was created by God. He was not more than merely human. God transferred all the life, spirit power to him and all that kind of stuff. 
Now what do we have after he has died? Does he rise from the grave? Was there an empty tomb? No. There's actually a body in the tomb. There are bones there in the tomb, and the bones are going to rot away. What then raised from the tomb? Well, it was a spirit being that raised from the tomb. Jesus is now spiritually resurrected, not bodily resurrected. You, you tracking with me? What do Christians believe? Body and soul came out of that grave. If you found Jesus' tomb today, assuming no other people were buried in that tomb, you found that tomb today, you could verify that it was Jesus. It said Jesus was here on the inside of the tomb. Would there be bones in it? No. Would there have been bones that decayed in it that were Jesus' bones? No. Jesus bodily got out of the grave and walked away, and what was left were these grave clothes. And they walked in, and they saw no one was there. The women did. And a couple of the disciples. Okay? Jehovah raised him from the dead, not as a human son, but as a mighty, immortal spirit son. For 40 days after that, he materialized as angels before him had done, to show himself alive to his disciples. So then you would say, well, what about all those you know, appearances that he had? And, and what about Paul in 1 Corinthians who says that he appeared to 500 people and last to me? What about the disciples and Mary Magdalene at the garden tomb? And what about uh, all the different appearances that he had to his disciples in the locked room and things like that? And they would say, yeah, God raised him and materialized him in front of people like angels do from time to time, where people actually see the angels, sometimes are touched by the angels and various other things, and he materialized them that way, and then later he, poof, vanished, and he is an immortal spirit son to this day. Okay. Sound compelling? Uh, having given up his flesh for the life of the world, Christ could never take it again, and become a man once more. So they're trying to undermine the resurrection of the dead by saying, well, once he gave up his body, he can't get it back again. That's preposterous. Okay, so then when you say, I believe that as Christians, we are going to rise from the dead as Christ has risen, what are they going to say about that? Well, once you've given up your fleshly body, you can't rise again. So what happens after death? Certainly not anything that we would call human life at all, right? So, for this basic reason, his return could never be in the human body that he sacrificed once for all time. So again, undermining Christian doctrines, one right after the other. Resurrection of the dead is now undermined. A death, at death, man's spirit, so now this, this, this is how you are. Right? This is, so then this translates, if this is the way Christ is, then this is what translates to you. At death, man's spirit, his life force, which is sustained by breathing, goes out. It no longer exists. When they are dead, both humans and animals are in the same state of complete unconsciousness. That the soul lives on after death is a lie started by the devil. So, 
What does the undermining of Christ, the undermining of, the resurre- of His resurrection, obviously the undermining of His death, what does that then do to you by the time it's translated all the way down to you? You are nothing more in death than an animal. You see that? Anytime you undermine sound Christian doctrine, what you end up with is you are without purpose and meaning. Nothing more than an animal. I don't know how that catches on, but it does. So, hell is undermined. There's no eternal punishment. Uh, you're just, you go into oblivion. Basically, you're annihilated, essentially, is the, the end of that. And then, when you die, we're going to see, well, let's, it's subject to interpretation. One, when you die, at, at least at first, you are in the same state as an animal. Uh, but who are... Who and how many are able to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Revelation limits to 144,000, a number that become part of the kingdom and stand on heavenly Mount Zion. So, if you're lucky, you're one of the 144,000. Christ went to prepare, prepare a heavenly place for His associate heirs, that is Christ's body, His church, for they too will be invisible spirit creatures. So at the end of all of this, what is the resurrection that few get? Is to uh, uh, an invisible, heavenly spirit creature realm. Now how do you get here? Well, uh, as was the, the question earlier on, Jehovah's Witnesses are going to read from their translation of the Bible called the New World Translation. Remember that. NWT is how it would be abbreviated. Because, remember that because some online Bible software platforms, that will be one of the available translations on the drop-down sometimes. Just pay attention to that and know what NWT, or the New World Translation actually is. The translation that, they, uh, that uh, they have. Now, here's what you need to understand about that. That there were no translators on the committee who actually were scholars in Greek or Hebrew when they translated this Bible. Uh, the reason we know this is because it actually came out in several court cases one was with Charles Russell, who was in a litigation suit. I debated whether or not to include this, but I decided not to. Uh, he was in a 
litigation lawsuit with, with somebody else, with somebody who he said defamed him, who is an actual, by all accounts that I can see, an actual preacher of the gospel, criticized C.T. Russell for who he was, and he sued him for uh, libel and slander and all this kind of stuff. Well, he ended up having to take the stand, and the, the lawyer, on behalf of the pastor, said, you can read Greek and Hebrew? And he said, yes. And he said, uh, could you read Greek and Hebrew right now? And he said, yes. I might get a few things wrong. Uh-oh. <laughs> I was right. Uh, I might get a few things wrong, but yeah, yeah, I could. He said, well, in front of you is the Greek alphabet. Can you, can you look at the Greek alphabet and, and tell me what the letter? Uh, not right offhand, I couldn't. Can you read Greek or Hebrew, goes the next question. No, is the answer. Yeah. So, on the translation committee, and has always been the case, throughout time, when you get to, and there, there was another actual translator of the New World Translation who was on the stand uh, in another trial and said the exact same thing. Came out the exact same way. There were no Greek and Hebrew scholars on the translation team to translate the Bible. Now, the NIV, the ESV, the, there's a lot of English translations. that We have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to English translations. And they're good. Read them. They're good. They're valuable. They may have some differences in them, but on the whole, they're, they're good and valuable. Read them. But all of them were translated by Greek and Hebrew scholars who knew what they were doing when they did it. And they translated them that way for a reason. But when you get to John 1.1, and it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, there is a fundamental misunderstanding of how to translate Greek that causes you to put in the letter A there in front of God instead of leaving it without an A. So when you follow modern English translations, they're good because they're done by people who actually read the Greek and read the Hebrew and know it. So, that's what you need to know. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses have much in common with the Arians of old, who likewise insisted that Jesus on earth was merely a man. Heretical insistence that God the Father created God the Son has been around for the entire church age. The entire church age. It's been around for 2,000 years. This heresy is then defeated the same way the early church defeated the heresy back then. It is insisting, I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one essence with the Father. Through Him all things were made. So again, coming back to the same things that we looked at last week, if you look on that page 3 of your handout, there is an, uh, this appendix to the Nicene Creed I updated by including some verse references that are helpful to undermine the difference between a Christian and Jehovah's Witness. When you read this statement, these are the verses that this is coming from. This is how we understand that. One Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, 9. Philippians 2, 9-11. to 
Jesus Christ. Remember, Philippians 2 is, is the one where he says, uh, he's raised him from the dead, given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Paul is not saying there that Jesus was made secondary, raised to be a spirit creature. No, he is Lord and King. What do we mean when we say God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made? What John means in 1, 1, John 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. By Him all things were made. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Well, if nothing was made without Him, how can He be made? Right? So get Him to keep going. Let's keep going in John 1. You'll see the difference here. He's of one essence with the Father. He says that as much in John 10.30. I and the Father are one. Through Him all things were made. Again, John 1, 1 1-3. And Colossians 1, 16-17. Also Hebrews 1, 1 1-3. Reiterate that same thing. Get Him to read those passages too. As far as they will go. Get Him to read these passages. This is what is true. This is what is false. So continue to reiterate those things to them and bring Scripture to bear. And, And really... You should expect that their reading of their translation is probably going to be different than yours. And in the event that it is the same, you bring up these verses, and let's say it's the same. Ask them, what does that mean? Right? If, they, if what they read and what you read is the, it happens to be the exact same translation, through him all things were made, without him there was not anything made that was made. I can't remember what the New World Translation says about that, but if, let's say it's the same. What does that mean? How can he be made if everything was made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Wouldn't he be the exception to that? Right? Again, it's reiterating sound doctrine, but remember at the end uh, uh, of the confession of the Nicene Creed is I look forward to the resurrection of the dead. And honestly, this is your evangelistic pitch. No. We're not going to be raised be spirit creatures. We're not going to be, be discarded and sent into oblivion. We're going to stand before a holy God, body and soul, resurrected from the dead as Jesus was resurrected. And there we are going to be judged. Those who do not place their trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone for salvation whether you trust in your own flesh or you trust in some other deity, you're going to be eternally punished. But those who place their trust in Christ will live with Him body and soul forever. It's important to remember that this is sound doctrine. This is what we believe about Jesus. Also to remember, we've been doing this 2,000 years, and we're going to keep doing it for 2,000 more years until Christ returns and puts an end to it all, right? But it's going to keep going, so we, we, we need to understand a couple things. It's not new. The things that are being told to you on your doorstep, they have not been, they, they were invented 2,000 years ago by Satan himself, and it's been devilish doctrine ever since, right? And it's never going to stop. Timothy, quickly. 
Iya. Iya. I'm sure they love that. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I said, it, it, say again. Uh, I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Jehovah's Witnesses before them. I mean, they know who translated their Bible. They don't know the translating team, but they know that it came. It was produced by the Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah, but they would say it's the authentic Word of God. Yeah. Yeah, it's basically just a twisting of every single verse, of all, most verses. Some of them are exact same. Uh, a professor of mine used to say, uh, you, you sit down with your Bible and you read a passage and you're like, I never saw this before. I, I think I, I'm understanding something about this that nobody's ever understood before. And then you find some 8th century monk that discovered that a long time ago. <laughs> it's a bad reading of history. And, you know, I, like they'll say about the Nicene Creed, oh, well, that was produced by the government and that was you know, government propaganda, and that was, that, that's all false, and now you've come to believe what is creedal theology, which is, you know, false doctrine and things like that, and now, the early church is articulating what we believe to be true about Jesus and what has been handed down from time of old to now, and the only way you can get to a perverted form of doctrine is by taking the actual word of God and retranslating it in a way no one has before, right? That's it. Let's Yeah. 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 Argue on the grounds of the scriptures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for truth. We pray that you would give us a boldness, uh, a resoluteness of, our, of what we believe to be true, what we know to be true. Help us to articulate that when time arises. We certainly don't want to be inundated with uh, false doctrine. And we don't want false doctrine peddled to us. But in the event that one of us finds ourselves in the situation where we are face-to-face -face with someone peddling false doctrine, would you bring to mind for us all the things we know to be true, would you give us the scriptures at the time that we need them? Remind us of the things that we've learned, of the things that we know. Allow us to admit the things that we don't know, the things that we're ignorant about, and be humble, be winsome, but also be bold and steadfast, immovable, not being shifted by the winds of false doctrine but being steadfast 
on the cross of Christ, knowing that it is by His sacrifice alone that we have forgiveness of sin, by His resurrection alone that we have the promise of eternal life. Pray that You would anchor that deep in our heart, that it would never be able to be removed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.